Welcome to the Twimmel AI Podcast. I'm your host, Sam Charrington. All right, everyone, I am here with Adriana Kavashka. Adriana is an assistant professor at the University of Pittsburgh. Adriana, welcome to the Twimmel AI Podcast. Thank you. Thanks for having me. I'm looking forward to our chat, uh, but before we dive in, I'd love to have you share a little bit about your background and how you came to work in machine learning and AI. Sure. Yeah. So um, starting from my college years, I did my bachelor's at Pomona College in California, and I had a double major in computer science and media studies because I could never really decide to work on just one uh, area, I suppose. And and I've actually, you know, I've obviously used my computer science degree, but I've also used my media studies degree in, in some of the research that I do. Then I got my PhD at UT Austin, working with Kristen Grauman. That was a, it was a very fun time, and I still miss Austin. And then I came to Pittsburgh, which is also great. Um, and I have been really lucky to be able to work on whatever topics I wanted to, because that's one great thing that you can do when you're faculty. And I work in computer vision and machine learning more broadly. I do a lot of work with with vision and language. Nice. I'd love to hear more about how your work intersects with your uh, background in media studies. Sure. Yeah. So I do some work with uh, trying to understand the rhetoric of visual advertisements, which is, I guess, one of the most unique parts of my research. And you know, advertisements, some of them are fairly boring, but there's also a lot of ads that are really creative and really require fairly complete understanding of a lot of things that AI is starting to be better at. But um, a lot of them require common sense understanding. I think one of the most, um, not sure why I keep remembering this ad, but I think one of the most complex ads that I saw was some public service announcements about secondhand smoke, and it showed a little girl uh, sitting in an armchair smoking, except you realize that one of the arms on that girl is actually a little bit larger than the other. So you you kind of realize it's not that the girl is smoking, it's someone else is smoking. And so all of that, you know, first of all, being able to compare the two arms and see that one of them is bigger is, you know, something that we don't have as a task in computer vision. We could probably do it, but it's this is just one example of types of visual perception that you have to do differently than kind of tasks like object recognition, say. And then you also have to reason about what that means and what this implies. And that's, you know, we've, we've uh, in recent years, there's always been a lot of interest in common sense reasoning, but not necessarily when you're talking about images that have some sort of intent. So that's something that's, that's really interesting, but also really hard. And you know, advertisements are part of the media. You have certain things that they could be referring to in the broader social context. And so, but I actually got that idea from, to work on this, from books that I had somewhere in boxes that were about culture and, and ads and uh, and decoding ads and their messages, which I oh, had nice. from a class in media studies. Nice. When we talk about Visual reasoning and related ideas focused on reasoning. From your perspective, what does reasoning mean? What's the right way to think about it? And I think a lot of, uh, you know, a lot of people have different opinions. So it's being able to see relationship between concepts and, yeah, I guess concepts and objects. It's being able to rely on broader knowledge that humans have that is not necessarily explicitly encoded in any sort of knowledge base or in any sort of Data, so they're just things that humans know and even even small kids know that are a little bit hard to explain, that are sometimes too common or too obvious 
And I think these two things are not necessarily contradiction, being hard to explain and being obvious. And it also requires being able to tell what in a particular environment is actually relevant. So it's not, you know, being able to focus your attention on some parts of the environment that's actually relevant to your reasoning task and not, not everything is relevant. So I found that it's really hard to define what reasoning is and people disagree. And so working on reasoning is, is I think, a little bit hard because there's a lot of kind of expectations and there have been data sets published that people have worked on that aim to capture common sense reasoning. But I think anything you're formulating machine learning, there's a chance you're going to overfit to some specific data set characteristics. And some of the recent work that we've done is kind of exposing what the methods are actually doing that's not true reasoning. And I think you can probably never find anything that everyone would agree is true, you know, pure reasoning. So it's just, uh, we have to work with data, but reasoning maybe goes beyond data. It has to do with priors and inductive biases and just... uh, it doesn't exactly mesh well with data-driven approaches necessarily. It does, and, and people have made a lot of progress with these kind of unsupervised techniques, uh, extracting common sense knowledge from just reading text. And we've, we've all heard about that. But I think in terms of visual reasoning, we maybe haven't made quite as much progress yet in terms of capturing actual common sense. But we're getting there. What are some of the data sets that are most important in your work? So for that type of, the data set I was specifically referring to, there's one data set called Visual Common Sense Reasoning, which is published by University of Washington. Um, And they have uh, these frames from movies and questions that humans wrote, as well as multiple answer options. And so the question, I think the canonical example that they use is you have a woman bringing dishes to a table in a restaurant, and one of the other participants in a scene is showing her basically who to serve the dish to. And the question is, you know, that all of what I explain is, you know, is, is our interpretation of the image. It's not explicitly encoded in the image. It's just there. You have to figure out what part of the image is, is relevant to the question. The question is, why is this person pointing to this other person? And the of the four answer options, you know, one of them is because he ordered this food. Mm-hmm. And so you kind of have to reason about what happened before and what happened after and you have to rely on, you know, maybe someone who's never been to a restaurant wouldn't necessarily be able to do that, or maybe they can. It just has to do with, you know, human intention and some expectation of behavior that you've learned from some data set in some way, or you've just have in your head from not a lot of samples. You know, I think a kid can figure out what's going on without having seen a massive data set of, of samples. Yeah. Yeah, you made an interesting comment in there reflecting on your description of the image isn't really what's in the image. The image is, you know, if we're talking about a digital image, it's just some pixels with some colors and intensities. All of that meaning is meaning that we gave to it based on what we see. Right. And there's this really cool task of image captioning, right? But a lot of what image captioning work is focused on is, is in some sense, capturing the literal meaning of the image, if, if you can say that, or the, the object presence in the image. You're still describing in a natural language, but it's still essentially a translation of what's in the image at the surface. And we've done some work, and it's, it's of course, really hard, and uh, we still have a ways to go, but we've done some work in trying to relate images to captions that you might find in a newspaper. Because in a newspaper, the caption provided with the image complements it in some way. So you have to see what's the slightly more abstract connection between the pixels and and the text that's given, especially if you're looking at these political articles. And political articles require a lot of knowledge about, you know, what's happened in recent months or or recent years to put the image in context. And so the caption is not going to summarize all of that knowledge for you. It's going to operate at a more abstract and more kind of complementary level to the image. And and, uh, that's a fun area that I hope to see more progress in in the future. 
Is there uh, an explicit or accepted name for this more meaningful type of captioning? I'm not not sure that there is. There there are data sets. There is this conceptual captures data set, for example, which is, you know, it's called conceptual captures, right? It's actually yeah. text scrolled from the web, like alt text for images, which is not written to train a machine vision system to produce these captures. It's trained to help a, a person if they can't see the, you know, if they can't see the image or to give them some context about the image. Yeah, I'm not I'm not sure that there's a there's a common name, but some sort of conceptual captioning, I guess. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Some of your work involves supplementing what the algorithm has access to in the image with external knowledge bases or data sets. Can you talk a little bit about the relationship between kind of, you know, intrinsic meaning or reasoning about a, or reasoning about information that's intrinsic to an image versus this work that you're doing with external knowledge sources? Sure. Yeah. So I was really excited about, I think when I first became interested in using knowledge bases was, was a few years ago. And at the time people were not doing a lot of common sense reasoning. And I thought it was a good way to kind of bring back sort of classic AI techniques that are now essentially part of this, this uh, neurosymbolic reasoning that people are doing to answer questions. But briefly, I think using knowledge bases, is it's tricky to see benefits from that because your model can always, depending on, on the task you give it and depending on the way you evaluate it, it's always going to, like, knowledge bases give you some sort of priors, which in theory should be useful. But depending on how the task is formulated, your method is not really rewarded for priors, it's rewarded for being able to mimic some sort of task. And so it's not really rewarded for true reasoning, it's rewarded for a particular ability to to match questions to, to answers, which we've shown is some, you know, a lot of things you can say are overfitting, and that's an example of that. But there's there's something we're calling shortcuts, where the model is just bypassing reasoning by finding more shallow patterns to look at. And so we've tried to we have this one paper where we show that if you, on our advertisements data set, where we formulate a task of trying to understand what the ad is, is suggesting the viewer should do, versus, as well as what arguments it provides for doing that. So say, I should buy this dress because it makes me elegant, or I should be a nice person and not bully kids in school because whatever. If you train an algorithm to predict the correct statement for what you should do and why, and you try to bring in external knowledge from a knowledge base to help the method do that task, you don't see much of a benefit. But if we formulate an additional task where you test whether the algorithm can retrieve the appropriate knowledge from a knowledge base, which is just another task, right? But we um, we show that... Um, we, we also come up with this masking approach, which supposedly makes, you know, breaks shortcuts and makes the method less likely to, to overfit to shortcut patterns. So this removal of shortcut patterns is more helpful for this task of predict which knowledge piece is relevant than it is for the original task. So it's just kind of at a high, there was a lot of details here, but at a high level, <laughs> you know, the, the task, this paper has a lot of things going on. And so it's hard to say what is the, the key idea. But to me, one one takeaway is, you know, you might be trying all these cool things that you think are, are really important, but if the task is not formulated in a way to reward whatever you're studying, you're not going to see any impact from your method. Mm-hmm. So you did pack a lot into, sure. into that Sorry response. about that. Uh, but we can, we can back up and maybe start with shortcuts because you've written several papers that dig into this idea of shortcuts that are essentially faults in visual question answering data sets and 
you've shown that many of the state of the art results are actually kind of falling victim to these shortcuts. So let's let's kind of let's start sure. with that and explain. Sounds what's good. There. Yeah. So any data set is going to have some sort of biases. The way that um, some of the VQA data sets are set up is you have a question and you have a number of answer options and you're supposed to you know, learn some feature space where given the question and the image, you're going to be able to retrieve the correct answer option. But we find, and the assumption is that if you can do that, you're understanding the meaning of the image and the question and the answer options. But we find that, for example, on this visual common sense reasoning or VCR data set, you can do really well just by counting the overlap, you know, the, the string overlap between your image and your answer options, meaning that the correct option often has the most overlap with the question. And that's not because the data set was not designed well. It's just because people, when they provide answers, they tend to repeat parts of the question. And you might do this, you know, I imagine if you're a teacher in a school, you might do that just to make it, you know, things fully clear and to, you know, using the question as, as part of your answer is, is not a bad thing, except that it encourages the models to learn that kind of pattern as opposed to like a more abstract or, or more general interpretation of the question. Meaning so, instead of doing what I'm supposed to do as the model, look at an image and use the information in the image to select which of the answers is most fitting for the image. Mm-hmm. I'm actually just looking at the question and based on the patterns in the question and the relationship between the entities that are mentioned in the questions and the answers, pick an answer. So in, in many cases, the algorithm doesn't even need to look at or look at the image. Yeah, and people have looked at that, um, like not looking at the image is a, is a prior data set bias. In our case, you could... That's not really what, we don't study that as much, but you could also say, you could think of the model as, as recognizing the objects in the image and just, let's say the image shows a dog and a table and something else. And some of the answers mention these these object categories as well. So you could also find shortcuts between the image and the, the question, but not understand the relationship between these objects or what they're associated with. The fact that cats, you know, like milk or whatever, I, I'm not coming up with a good example, but without knowing anything about what these objects mean or, or how they're used or, you know, what, what they relate to, you could still find these shortcuts. Yeah. And so I think one of the questions that your work in this area is asking is, if these shortcuts exist and, you know, we set up these tasks to demonstrate reasoning, algorithms are performing very well on these tasks, but these shortcuts exist, so therefore there's not reasoning happening. And so you've developed some techniques like masking, and it kind of begs the question for me, are you saying that with masking that gets us closer to reasoning, or does it just close these holes that obviously existed in the previous approaches? So masking is something that, um, so these, these very popular language approaches that learn common sense by essentially predicting context in a sentence, they also, some of them also use a type of masking, which we kind of, in at least our early paper, we came up with masking without being aware of those methods. Because I guess when we first started working on this, these methods were still not popular yet. And let's so masking what it is before we get too far. Sure. So... So these transformers in NLP, which we've started borrowing in vision as well, would train a method to say, predict, you know, you have a sentence, you take out a word from that sentence, you know, randomly chosen, you take multiple words, and you train an approach to, given the context, predict that missing word. So presumably you would, you know, there's a, there's a relationship between being able to do this task and being able to understand the meaning of the words. So if the sentence is, I took blank out of the fridge, there's only a limited number of things that you would put in a fridge. And so if you can do this task, you understand what goes in a fridge. 
And so this kind of masking has been used to enable learning of, you know, of language representations of just, just vectors that capture meaning. And the way you know you capture meaning is you look at the distance between the vectors representing words that should be similar. And if that distance is small, semantically similar, and if the distance is small, then you know you have a reasonable representation. So we were using masking to increase robustness, not, you know, we don't think that we've gotten quite at, at common sense, but in one of our papers, this masking was what was enabling, you know, we show that when you do mask at training time versus you don't mask at training time, the ability to find the right knowledge pieces for a given task increases with masking. So that's one paper. And another paper, we showed that when we do masking, the methods become less fragile with respect to shallow changes in the answer options, such as replacing pronouns in the incorrect options or replacing words that should just be kind of grammatical constructs, but not carry any meaning. So we show that when we do these silly changes in the answer options, when we mask, our method is more robust than when you, when you don't mask. And also that when you do mask, the method becomes, starts using more of the sentence as opposed to just these potential shortcuts. So it doesn't just count how many words are overlapping. It looks at more of the evidence in the question and the answer options when you do masking, which, which makes sense. Because when you mask, you know, if you mask randomly, the method can't just rely on using the same repeated evidence. So it has to look at something else. And were your models transformers by implication or were you applying masking to a, a different type of model? Both. In, in our earlier paper, which was on our ads data set, it was not a transformer. We were using a, a graph formulation to capture information from the image and from potential slogans in the image because ads often have these slogans as well as external knowledge. So there we were using masking, not in the context of transformers. And then for the VCR data set, we were using an existing prior multimodal transformer that had tokens from both the image and the text space and the, the question space. Mm-hmm. And so now that we've talked about shortcuts and masking, let's go back to the first paper you mentioned with the ads data set and the external knowledge. How does masking come into play with that problem and the external data? Sure. So we were finding on our ads data set that when you use the slogans in the image, the slogans, so there's something we're calling the action reason statement, which is what you should do and why, according to the ad. And that statement is what the method is supposed to predict. Or given a number of options for that, it's supposed to choose the right action reason statement. But often for popular brands, the method can cheat by using words that are that appear in the slogan. So the slogan presumably tells you some things, gives you some arguments why you should buy something. It may not be a very obvious argument. It may require some reasoning on part of the human, but it may also just mention some of the words that are also going to be the action reason statement. So I, I think the example we use is it's, if it's a Nike ad and you consider the slo- So the reason we consider the slogan in the, in the uh, image is an input is because we can do OCR and get reasonable results. So it's not, we don't need any human annotations. We can just consider that as part of the input. But if the If the slogan in the ad mentions Nike, depending on how the answer options are chosen, maybe only the the correct answer contains the word Nike. So if you randomly sample your negatives that are incorrect, it's likely that you're not going to sample Nike unless the way you sample is from other clothing ads or even other Nike ads, but not this ad. So, So this kind of says the, you know, how you sample negatives is important and Plenty of other people have come to the same conclusion. That's a little bit of a, you know, it's not something you would think is really that important, but it actually does matter because if the method is just learning to push down negatives and push positives up, then of course it's going to depend on 
some characteristics of the negatives. So just, and when just you say yeah. how you sample negatives, are you talking about in your data set construction, how you create your negative responses? Sure. Yeah. So this is, this is called a multiple choice task. So either you can mm-hmm. train your algorithm to, from scratch, generate an action reason response or whatever response, generate a caption for the image which is typically hard because there's a lot of variance in the captions you might generate for an image. So people often formulate this multiple choice test, which is, okay, I'm going to give you a bunch of options and you just have to choose the right one, which is a little bit easier. But then it's exactly what you said. You have some number of answer options. The correct one is just whatever a human annotator provided for this image. But then you also have to provide some incorrect options. And those typically people just take as the corresponding statement or corresponding caption that was written for another image. So you don't have humans generating negatives for this image. You just take the positives for other images and say these are negatives for this image. And so depending on how you do that, you may be learning not the right thing. Right. And in your previous description, you seem to be suggesting that while the idea of introducing the external knowledge base, you wanted it to be more helpful than it actually turned out to be. Is right. That, did I get that right? Exactly. That's that's exactly right. And, and I, th- I think at first it was just disappointing, but then we realized it's, you know, it's just the way the task is set up and the way a lot of tasks are set up. And I think in some sense, you know, every time you do something with data, you're you're going to, you know, a model is going to learn something that's not exactly what you were hoping it would learn. So it's just a little bit of, you know, of a, not sure if it's a philosophical question, but there's something about data-driven approaches or tasks or evaluation tasks that at the very least, you have to be careful and and you have to make sure you understand what the model is doing. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, if nothing else, it reminds us to be very, very careful about how we formulate our problem and the extent to which that be wary of the degree to which that's aligned with what we're actually trying to do. Right, right. And I guess ways to uh, to integrate, you know, human intuition, human knowledge to as some, some form of sanity check to the model is so basically a way to have human experts actually contribute positively to a data driven prediction. It would be really useful, but in my experience, it's kind of challenging to do like how to best leverage, you know, human intuition and patterns you can discover from data. I, I don't think I know how to do that properly yet. And so are your observations with regard to external knowledge bases general or are they specific to this particular problem formulation or or put otherwise, are you aware of other examples or problems that do successfully incorporate kind of these external knowledge bases in in the model? So I guess I haven't been following too closely in the past, say, two years, what people have done. Um, we show that the, you know, the same problem exists in both our as data set, which is you know, less common, but also the VCR data set, which is more common. So I want to say it's general. And, and we, um, we plan to study how this works on other multiple choice answering tasks, but it's all being in the VQA domain. And of course, you know, this is just an example of data set bias. And people have looked at data set biases broadly in other settings as well. So I want to say, you know, the problem of be careful how you formulate your task is is pretty general. We've just focused on it in this VQA setting. Mm-hmm. You are careful to point out in your paper that while this is an example of data set bias, you know, shortcuts is unique to other types of bias. Can you elaborate on that a little bit? Oh, so I think we were just saying that data set biases commonly have to do, not always, but with just finding the mode in a distribution, like predicting the most common answer. 
for example, or then ignoring the image also has to do with that. And people have proposed ways to force a method to look at the image and to push the answers away from the answer you would get if you just looked at the question. So you can form this adversarial, this is just one particular paper, you can form this adversarial loss that says the full model should be incentivized not to produce the same answer as a model that just looks at the question. I think the example you gave is like in VQ data sets, if you ask how many dogs are in the image, right. the model will often just say two because that's the most popular answer. Right. And Debbie's group at, at Georgia Tech has looked at that. But we were making the argument that in our case, it's not just about predicting the most common answer, but it's it's about because the multiple choice task is set up in such a way that you actually capture the meaning. So you have like a feature vector for the answer options. And both the question and answers are given in text rather than like a classification task where given an image, you're supposed to predict a, a category. Like there, the input is image, the output is, you know, some category ID. Even if it was a, a textual representation of the categories, you will still have, you know, different modalities as inputs and outputs. In our case, the question is an input and that's in text and the answer options are also in text. So it's, it's kind of much easier for a model to find these shortcuts than it is for other tasks. So that's what we think is, is unique in this uh, VQA setting. Mm-hmm. So we've talked about the VQA setting and the VCR work that you've done. You've also done work on robust visual reasoning. Uh, can you talk a little bit about that setup? Sure. I guess that could mean a different thing. So I'm interested in domain adaptation and generalization, which has to do with what training methods to be robust to kind of visual shifts. And the common setting that I've also worked in is, say you want to recognize dogs and cats and, and elephants. The massive data sets that we have are typically image data sets. But if you, you know, I got this idea from my son looking at his, you know, toddler books and having absolutely no trouble recognizing elephants and other animals in these very abstract, you know, paintings. They're not all that abstract because it's a, it's a kid's book, but it was still, you know, it's just one instance of an elephant that a certain artist drew in a certain way. And of course he had no trouble recognizing that as an elephant. So if you train a vision system to recognize dogs and cats in In photos, it's going to have a lot of trouble recognizing these in paintings or cartoons or sketches or some other sort of abstract art. I don't know if, you know, sculptures, I guess, becomes 3D, so that becomes harder. So so I'm very interested in these domain robust techniques for um, actually ensuring that your model can recognize these categories in other domains. And there's work in what's called domain adaptation where you have some images in in the target domain, but they may be labeled or unlabeled, meaning I don't necessarily have, so I have a model for dog in in the photo domain, and I have some images in, some painting images. And so what I can do, even if I don't have labels for dog, is I can at least try to make sure that the feature distributions, the way I extract features in photos and paintings is similar, which would allow me to use the classifier that I trained on photos in the painting domain. And then there's also something called domain generalization, which is just a different task. And it means that I see no samples from the target domain. I see no paintings. I've, you know, I've never seen a painting. I don't know what it is. But if you give me a painting, I'll still be able to recognize dogs and cats in it. And so that's a little bit of a harder task because there's nothing about the target domain that you can use. You just better make sure that whatever you learn is, is general enough. And, you know, in that setting, 
um, people typically train on multiple source domains. So I, let's say I'm going to train on photos and sketches, and I'm going to hope to do well on paintings or cartoons. And it makes sense because whatever you, just by forcing your method to, to learn on different domains that have different feature characteristics, it's going to learn something that's going to be in between, you know, a photo specific and a, whatever I said, sketch specific type of feature space. And so it's going to have some hope of doing well on paintings. But then there's other kind of more, uh, that, that's actually usually a common baseline where you just train on multiple domains, but then you try to find ways to bridge features of these domains you know, by saying the the mean of the features that I extract from photos should be similar to the mean of the features that I extract from sketches and so on and so forth. And so we've done some work on that. What I've what I've done that's that's uh, we're actually very much still working on that. What I've noticed though is that these methods typically still use appearance based or texture based features, uh, say features from a ResNet. And there's been some recent work that shows that that CNNs have this texture bias. So that what they learn is primarily texture. They learn a little bit of shape, but they, they primarily learn texture. And so my idea was to try to capture shape in a more explicit way based on the hypothesis that if you capture shape more explicitly, then your methods will be more robust than if they just rely on texture. And then we've done some domain adaptation work. So it's so domain robustness work in the VQA setting as well, which is a very new paper. And we've just done some, some initial steps, but People have looked at domain adaptation for object recognition. Why not do this for VQA? What does it even mean in the context of VQA? Sure. Well, being able to trade a model on one VQA data set and being able to apply it with not a lot of fine-tuning on a different data set. Say, if Mm -hmm. I train a model on the VCR data set, how well would it do on my VQA or on my AS data set, for example? Mm-hmm. And this would be useful if I don't have a lot of samples in my VQA, in my ads VQA data set. But of course, it turns out that a lot of the knowledge that you learn in one data set is, is going to be data set specific. Mm-hmm. What I was originally thinking about, and I, I may have misinterpreted this or read too much into one of the diagrams in one of your papers, but there seemed to be a thread in which you're you're asking the models to do these tasks like question answering, but then you're also asking them to explicitly explain their reasoning. Right, Um, right. And you do that as either part of the same task or as a side task. And I was curious about that line of work and what you're seeing there. It, It almost, in a lot of ways, is parallel to or reminiscent of some of the work happening around explainability in AI. Sure. Yeah. And, and I guess we um, wanted to say that this is not, not quite explainability, but it's very much in the same vein. So this is what I was saying about the, the task of, so given an image retrieve, given an image and a slogan, for example, if the image is about this Nike ads and you try to retrieve information from a knowledge base based on the slogan. So the slogan says Nike. And so you're going to go query knowledge base and you're going to retrieve a bunch of knowledge pieces about Nike, but some of them are going to be about in our example, Nike the goddess, Nike the asteroid, some of them will be about Nike the sportswear company, but a lot of them will not be about that. And so there's going to be a lot of irrelevant knowledge. And if the model that's using this knowledge actually understands the, the image in the question, it should be able to figure out that, well, in this case, I kind of want to throw away the Nike the goddess and Nike the asteroid information and just use the one about Nike the sportswear company. And so we formulate this, the ability to select the relevant knowledge pieces as a, what we call a side task, which is essentially forcing the method to explain it's, what it's doing. But I can definitely see that being uh, a form of, of explainability. In our case, it's more about 
an extra task that's testing the means through which the method is doing the main task, the main task being choose the right statement for this image. So it's just a fine difference. It's very much in the spirit of explainability. Mm -hmm. Tell us a little bit about the general direction that you're taking your research going forward. What are some of the things you're excited about? Yeah, something that I didn't talk about, um, that we didn't talk about so far because we've published just a few things on that is, so I recently got an SF Career Award to work on this topic of weekly supervised training of object detectors. So, so far we talked about how, you know, object detection is is a well-established task and there's there's reasoning, which is much more interesting. But uh, again, reasoning being so hard to define, it's sometimes refreshing to work in a slightly more mainstream direction, such as object detection. So what's interesting there is, you know, when, when people first started working on object detection, the way you would do it is you would have humans label images nicely with a box around a chair and giving the label of chair for that and doing this for lots of categories, lots of images. More recently, there's been this work on weekly supervised object detection, which is at least removes the need for humans to provide boxes on these images and just labels the objects at the image level. So you just give it an image of a bunch of things, you know that there's a chair in it, so your algorithm needs to go figure out which pixels actually are the chair. But what we're seeing, and so we have this this uh, this ICCB19 paper about training object detection models from just captions. The captions we used are from this Coco data sets, and so they're fairly descriptive, meaning the caption might say there's a chair and a table in this image. Now, there might be other stuff in the image. And so if there's other stuff in the image and that stuff is not explicitly mentioned in the caption, you kind of miss out on an opportunity of getting data for this category that's not mentioned. But there's also going to be... Um, so there's, there's generally just a mismatch between captions and images. Not everything in the image is mentioned in the caption. But in general, the way humans learn is from people speaking about what's around. You know, if you have a parent interacting with a child and mentioning the word bottle or mentioning the word tree, you know, the parent might at some point point in the general direction of a tree, but they may not do that with a bottle, say. And, and the child will still eventually pick up on the patterns and learn to associate bottle with these exact pixels that they're seeing. And so... Learning from kind of natural, what I'm calling natural narratives about, you know, that the people just nat naturally utter in a particular environment is very exciting to me. And what's, I think, hard there is when people speak, they have certain intent. So I, right now I'm speaking with you and I'm mentioning all this stuff that's not anywhere near me, right? So if you just take a recorded video of someone speaking, they're not going to be naming all the objects around them. They may be talking about all this other stuff that's not shown. So there's a lot of noise and um, I'm very excited about using, so, so in NLP, people have this discourse analysis, which is basically about why do people say something? What's the relation between two things they said? And I'm interested in extending this in kind of the multimodal setting to basically understand in a given recording that has video and audio, you know, why did people say this stuff? And based on that, should I use what's being said as supervision for my detection model? Because maybe the person was actually talking about what happened to them yesterday. And so they're not mentioning the objects near them. They're just mentioning, you know, something that happened that's not actually visual. And they might also be talking about abstract things versus concrete things. So in any case, there's a lot of a lot of ambiguity, a lot of noise that I'm very excited to deal with to enable this more natural training and more inexpensive training of detection models just from speech. Awesome. Awesome. Any thoughts on the applicability, like industrial or commercial applicability or real world applicability of the reasoning work that you're doing? Like, How close are we to making that something 
that, you know, were, or are you aware of instances where these are built into, you know, systems that are providing some kind of impact in the real world? That's a great question. I'm not sure that I have uh, a good answer. Yes, I'm not really, I mean, if you have, let's say, if you have robots interacting with people, these robots better be able to understand people's intents. I guess one example I had come up with before was if you have a personal assistant robot um, helping a person who's, you know, mobility impaired or is aging, so, you know, they better not fall. If you see that the person is, say, reaching in the closet for a ladder, you can maybe figure out that this person is about to climb on the ladder and so they might fall. Um, and mm-hmm. so if a, if a robot can make these inferences before they see something happening, and these inferences have to do with common sense, you know, that, that might be helpful. But I'm not, I'm not sure how much of the reasoning work has been used in a, in a practical setting. I'm sure it has. Yeah, I was it's asking about funny. like utility and more about like readiness or closeness. I think we, I see. we, we kind of get that a lot of these tasks around reasoning are trying to advance us towards a general AI. And there are narrow use cases, like you mentioned, this assistive robot or a personal assistant, where some of these tasks may be useful as part of the way we frame the the problem. And I'm just curious more for like your gut sense for like, are we there yet? What are the main milestones you think, or, you know, direction, however you want to take that, you know, for us to, you know, get from here to here to there, wherever there might be. Yeah. I mean, my gut feeling is we're not ready yet, but, you know, just in an LP, people have shown impressive reasoning performance and, you know, ability of these these models to to answer kind of, you know, encyclopedic type questions just by by unsupervised learning, you know, you, you and that makes sense. You give a model a book to read, they're going to learn a lot, right? That's what we do. And so I, I think we're in the right trajectory, but we're probably not there yet. And especially when you, um, and you can do the same thing with video. If you watch people do stuff, you know, if you watch people cook in their kitchen, you're going to learn about what the functionality of different objects. And so this, this unsupervised learning with massive data, I think is, you know, I'm very much excited about that. I think what we're not doing yet is capturing more senses because people Mm. have, have touched. They have, I, I don't know how useful smell is, but you have like audio, you have all these senses. And I think they help disambiguate each other in some sense. And you also have human, you know, volition. Humans do stuff because they they have a certain goal. And of course, all this, uh, you know, embodied learning that, that is being done in the robotics community and like in, the, you know, roboticists and, and vision people working together. That's great. But we just don't have data sets that I really wish we had a data set that captured more senses than just mm-hmm. video and audio. But of course, that's hard to capture in a data set setting. You know, humans do this every day. They they capture these data sets, but we don't. It's it's hard to create a large data set that's going to capture all this information. Uh, yeah. So that's something that I think is going to maybe prevent us in the next five or ten years from making super impressive progress. But I think if we can do that at some point, that would be highly useful in terms of capturing actual common sense. Yeah. Awesome. Well, Adriana, thanks so much for taking the time to share a bit about what you're up to. Thank you very much. It was great talking to you. Great chatting with you. Thank you. Yeah, thank you. All right, everyone. That's our show for today. 
To learn more about today's guest or the topics mentioned in this interview, visit twimmelai.com. Of course, if you like what you hear on the podcast, please subscribe, rate, and review the show on your favorite podcatcher. Thanks so much for listening and catch you next time. All right, everyone, that's our show for today. To learn more about today's guest or the topics mentioned in this interview, visit twimmelai.com. Of course, if you like what you hear on the podcast, please subscribe, rate, and review the show on your favorite podcatcher. Thanks so much for listening and catch you next time.